0: Good morning, family. This morning we're going to begin our study in the book of Malachi. We're reading from chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. So um, I want to pray for us. uh, As Melissa said, we're going to start... Uh, into the book of Malachi, which is a minor prophet in your Bible. So if you're um, not familiar with how the Bible works, you have an Old Testament, which is the larger portion, the first part you read in the New Testament, that's where you're introduced to this guy, Jesus, that we worship, and, um, and towards the end of the Old Testament, the last book there is, is Malachi. Actually, in the Jewish Bible, the Tanuk, it's uh, a different, it's Chronicles, but um, what our Bibles do is it comp- Uh, compiles all of these minor prophets together. So um, these minor prophets are smaller prophets, smaller books in the Bible. Um, It's a way to kind of memorize this. This was just helpful is um, all the O's. There's 12 minor prophets. All the O's in the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Obadiah, uh, Jonah, all those are together. So when you see those O's in one of the names um, that you'll know, that's kind of, you're in a minor prophet area and Malachi doesn't have an O is at the very end um, of our old Testament. So I'm going to give us a history of it. I want to pray for us in our time, kind of give us the context of what's going on. And then we're going to cover five verses. Uh, if you were paying attention to what Melissa came up and read uh, with Jacob, I love Esau, I hated. This should be a real easy uh, Sunday morning, so I'm excited for that. Um, so let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Um, thanks for the ability to come together and uh, sit under your word. Uh, we really are grateful for that. There's a lot of people in this world, a lot of our brothers and sisters Um, who are in hiding even today and this morning, who are um, navigating what it means to just have a piece of of one of the Psalms. Um, And they come in from the mountains and wherever to gather together in secret. Uh, But here we are openly uh, reading your word and we're grateful for that. I pray that we would be edified, we would be rebuked, we would be encouraged, Um, our faith would grow. Uh, and we, we need the, the word desperately to do that. So spirit, though these are words on the page, they are brought to life and empowered by you. And so we need you to enter here uh, now and stir our hearts. We love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's our historical context, okay? So if you're a Bible nerd, you're going to love the, the, the upfront stuff of where we're coming from. Um, our historical context uh, is the people of Israel prior to this were acting very foolishly. And you see this a lot in the Old Testament. If you decide to pick this thing up, you'll see that this people, Israel, which the story is set on, is going to be important for our text today, um, cannot get it right. And they continue to rebel against what God has for them. As a matter of fact, there's a book called Judges that um, uh, we've coined as humanity called the Cycle of Judges, where uh, the people of God uh, are acting foolishly. God punishes them by having another kingdom conquer them. They're conquered. They cry out for help. God rescues them. And then they're acting, acting, and they act foolishly. They have another nation. It's the cycle that they're in. Well, in this cycle, God says, stop worshiping these false gods. And and we're not just saying like, well, they're worshiping money. They're doing terrible, terrible acts. They're, They're sacrificing their children to false gods. Terrible, terrible things. And as they do this, God says, stop, but they won't stop. And so what he does is he punishes them by bringing this group, the Babylonians, a very large nation, and essentially kidnapping the people and taking them uh, uh, back to their nation. That's where you get a lot of the prophecies. Jeremiah, you get the story of Daniel in here. Well, Malachi is prophesying a hundred years after the people of God who were in slavery, they eventually get to go back. You can read that story in Nehemiah. They get to go back to where they came from. And when they go back, uh, they're there for a hundred years and they start acting the same way they were before. And so Malachi, insert Malachi, Malachi goes in, comes in and says, this has got to stop. This has got to stop. And what you have, if you have your Bibles or um, however you take notes on your phone or whatever it is, what you're going to see in these chapters is there six different categories we can break up in the book of Malachi, and they're in the form of God posing a question or God making a statement, I'm sorry, God making a statement, the people of God, Israel pushing back against that statement with a question, and then God responding against, uh, to their pushback. Six of those that we're going to cover uh, in our time with Malachi, okay? And I'm going to cover the first five verses, which is the first kind of push into that. So that's kind of our historical context. What we have, the people of God are back in Jerusalem, back in uh, uh, the place they're supposed to be, but they're acting foolishly. They've been waiting for this Messiah. What's going on? What's going on? And so there's a lot of things that God wants to cover uh, in this that he sees. And a lot of it, honestly, it's crazy how much it even relates to us, but before we get to some of that, let's get to our text, uh, and we're going to unpack what he's saying, kind of the, I would argue, the thesis of the whole letter. It starts with this in verse 1, and if you've never been with us before, this is just going to be a big Bible study together, honestly. We're going to just go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's called exegetical teaching. We just go through this the best way we feel like we can teach the Bible, okay? Okay. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So verse 1, let's just stop there real quick. Uh, I want you to know from the jump, when you see that word oracle, the oracle of the word of the Lord, uh, Lord to Israel by Malachi... I would argue, and a lot of commentators would argue, this is actually a better translation, the burden of the word of the Lord uh, from Malachi. Malachi is setting a tone here and essentially saying what I'm seeing is really, really hard and it's gonna be difficult to say, but we've got to call these things on the carpet. And this is what God is saying to me, so hear this out. And it's, just, it's hard, it's not easy. And there's moments I can totally even resonate with Malachi where, and maybe you can, if you have a friend or a family member and, and they say they're following Jesus and you go, wait a minute. Like, here's what I see. It's not easy to say that Malachi describes this as a burden, this burden that he's carrying. And so he, he, um, speaks on behalf of the Lord here. And this is what it says in verse two. This is what God says. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now, I want you to see the word love there is in a perfect tense in Hebrew, meaning um, there's a continuation that goes on with this, a completeness that we can almost look to in the past tense with these continuing ramifications. And that's important because um, if we just sit on this question, here is God making a declaration, I love you. I have loved you. I will love you. Now, before you just jump, my guess is a lot of us in the room right now are believers. My hope would be you would be able to make the declaration, I know God loves me. Your response might not be, well, wait, how have you loved me, right? But if you're making the declaration, no, no, I know God loves me, let me just ask a very real practical question to you. How would you defend that? If, if your like, neighbor said, well, what do you mean God loves you? How do you know God loves you? Is it because he's answered prayer? Is it because, like, he's patient with you? What would you say? How has God loved you? And their declaration in this moment is, how have you loved us? Now, because it's in the perfect tense, we can actually look at very completed ways that God has loved the people. I made a list of of things. So if you're not familiar with the story, the people of Israel, we just spent last year, most of last year, covering very large macro ways God has shown himself to love his people, i.e. rescuing them from slavery, Okay, so I made a a bullet point up here. He's rescued them from, uh, from slavery. He corrects them as they go into exile and takes them out of exile. He shows himself. He's freed them from the Babylonians just 100 years before this letter, Even and they're still asking him this question. He gives them the law. He gives them the temple. He gives them, uh, he gives them the law the temple, the, the, the uh, city that they're in. He gives them food when they're hungry, water when they're thirsty. Dare I say he's patient even in this moment as he's going to answer the question to show, listen, he could smite us at any moment with lightning, but he is patient in this moment to go, here's how I loved you. The people of God, in the text to ask the question, how have you loved us, is kind of crazy. Now, I would say that would be true for us as well, but we have like historical documented ways that God has constantly interceded and gone, here's how I loved you. I've shown my love to you over and over, not to mention how many times he has just outright said he loves you, how he loves them. I mean, it's just here in the text. And, And so this declaration, how have you loved us, then God responds. God gives us a response to what it is. Now, um, this is the response, and there's going to require a lot of things here, so let, let me read it uh, to you, and then we're going to spend some time on this um, back half and, uh, of the verse of 2 and the beginning of 3. Is not, this is God's response to how have you loved us. Is not Esau's, Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Um, okay, so let's do this. Um, So there's a few things that we we need to to talk about. The statement here, is not Esau Jacob's brother? God's first declaration in response to how have you loved us is, I want to give you a paradigm. And in this paradigm, there are two brothers. They've come from the same family. They're equal in stature, but I'm saying I love one of them and I hate the other. I need that to sit there for a second, okay? I've loved one and I've hated the other. I'm not making this up. This isn't some preference I'm bringing to the text. I haven't even explained anything yet. I'm just saying that's what the text says, okay? The back part of there, you have loved Jacob, but Esau, or, uh, yet I have loved uh, Jacob and Esau I've hated, um, creates a conversation that usually, and I'm just going to speak candidly as we approach this text, that as I'm going to do my best to explain, I have um, historically with our congregation been very slow and very soft in talking about need you to understand that when we've come to these texts, when I talk about predestination, reform theology, Calvinism, whatever it is, as we approach these things, I recognize that these doctrines mess with the human psyche and more so press against the human bravado that we have. I get it. I absolutely get it. And because that's true, we've, we've stopped in moments and said, hey, listen, we came across this text, let's take five weeks. And we did ex, uh, external classes outside of Sunday at a different property. said, let's take five weeks to spend multiple hours, 12 hours we spent in those classes to talk through here's what this means. Here's what we mean. When we use this word, here's how we're defining it. A few things in this conversation, though. What I have found is, um, one, no matter what I say, If I say, I'm a Calvinist, you're going to say, well, then this is what you believe. If I say, I'm an Arminian, you're going to say, this is what I believe. It doesn't matter, regardless of what, you have preconceived notions of what's going on. The thing is, though, as we're approaching this text, this isn't a topogetical sermon. This isn't something where we're going, let's study Reformed theology, or let's study predestination. Let's just study the text. And verses two and three, if I can be completely candid with you, is not soft with what it's declaring here. Dare I would say the tone has some fervor to it. We'll find in the rest of the letter, God's not taking like, let's take a five-week class so we can explain what's going on here. He's going, no, no, no. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. And he's direct with it. So this causes things within us to go, whoa, 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 wait, what? What's being said here? And so here's all I want to do. I want to take a moment and uh, in explaining the rest of the text, I want to get at two things. One, I want to explain clearly what I think um, God is saying here to his people in in answering how have you loved us. And number two, why is it worth, quote unquote, declaring as the Lord does? Why does he declare this? Why why is this God's answer to the question? So that's what we're going to do. I'll do my best to, to get there. Here's where we start with what is God declaring, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. We've got to start with who's, who are these Jacob and Esau characters. And I recognize there's some of you in the room, maybe many of you in the room have no idea who these guys are. What's wrong with Esau? Well, he's hairy. That was a big problem, but that's not the concern, okay? So here's what we know of this story. God chooses, um, if you go back to Genesis, this whole story starts in Genesis 12. God chooses to speak to this man named Abram. And we don't know why he chooses to speak to this man named Abram, but he chooses this man named Abram out of a lot of people on the earth. And he says, through your family, I want you to know I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Okay. Jacob has his, his name changed to Israel. And so from there we get the Israelites. The Israelites are abraham's descendants that god has chosen to bestow his blessing on this is important regardless of how you feel the story of the bible is this you may not like it and that's okay but this is the story god could have chosen the midianites he could have chosen the hittites he could have chosen the philistines but he chose the israelites that's the story that's the narrative. He could have chosen any nation. Now, to be clear, anybody is welcome to be part of this Israelite, Israelite tribe as long as they follow what God puts in front of them. But the reality is he did not choose the Mandalorians, right? He chose the Israelites. This is what he declares. Okay, and so as we look at this, there's a few verses that affirm this that I want to read to you. I don't have it on the screen, but you can just listen. In Isaiah 41.8, it says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, a descendant of Abraham, my friend. In First Kings 8.35, it says this, for you have separated from them all the peoples of the earth as your inheritance, the people of Israel. Second Samuel 7, 23 and 24. And what's one nation on the earth is like your people Israel. Do you hear that separation? There's one nation like your people Israel. Whom God went to redeem for himself as a people. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever. And you, O oh Lord, have become their God. For whatever reason, God chose to be the God of Israel. That's just facts in the Old Testament. Now, we have um, ways of, as humans to try to categorize things. And so what we have is um, doctrines to explain certain things when we come across something. Uh, meaning, when we want to talk about us growing more like the Lord, how do, do we say every time, I'm just trying to grow more like the w- Lord, right? So we have seminary professors who lock themselves in closets for days to come up with really fancy words to say that's called sanctification, Okay. And so what we have is we have a term here that this um, helps us understand what's going on. And the term is election. God has elected the people of Israel. That's what we have. The term to understand what's going on here in Malachi is God has made the declaration, I have elected Jacob and I have not elected Esau. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, I've hated Esau, which we'll get to, okay? But Jacob I have elected. And so the story, as we read it, is this idea of election. Uh, This whole idea, uh, I think, is so clear. If you ever want to pick up Deuteronomy 7, this is what Deuteronomy 7 says. And we're going to actually look at Deuteronomy 7 a lot uh, this morning. So I want to read it a few different times. For you are a holy people to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for himself. A special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love uh, on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all the peoples. Because the Lord... Uh, But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, this goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, talking about uh, Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of the Pharaoh, uh, king of Egypt. You can see it in there multiple times. The Lord God, he has chosen you to be his people. Just sit on that for a second. I get it. And I try to say this every time. This is where I start to soft pedal it a little bit. But like God is fervently making a declaration. You're going to see why this is so important. We don't just hide away or try to navigate why this doesn't mean what it's saying here. It is clearly making a declaration. God has decided to be the God of Israel. That's the God who he is. He has attached himself to this people, not a people, not because they're great. Not because they were the greatest, not because they're rich, not because they're famous. He has chosen to do this. I love what Tyler Johnson says, the best antidote to pride is election. I mean, here's the reality. There is no bravado you can bring when God says... Ah, this speaker. I don't like that speaker anymore. Why? They're the same speaker. I don't know. I choose this speaker. This speaker isn't walking away going, I'm so much better. The speaker's going, I have no idea. Well, it's a speaker, right? So it doesn't make really any sense with the analogy. We'll stop using the speaker analogy. But you you see what I'm saying. The the idea is God makes a declaration. I chose you. I chose you. It is. It is. It is. is. Now, this uh, logic that goes on... uh, and and this is always where you might argue the Calvinist goes, but it follows very similar logic, actually quoting the same exact people in Romans 9. Um, And we're going to have to get into what's happening here. But even Romans 9, using the same language, let me read this to you again. You're just going to have to open your Bible if you want to read it. It says this in verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. So it's elaborating on Jacob and Esau. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She, the mother, was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's in our text, right? Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Listen, I... I'm not, even if I didn't explain anything with our text this morning, if you're a believer in here, you hold the word of God as truth. You've got to do something with that. You've got to do something with that and doing origami gymnastics around the text to try to make things work is a lot more difficult than just going, okay, this is, I, I, I want to go to fairness. I want to go to what's right. I want to, this. I have definitions of how things should work. Nope. This is. I love what A.W. Pink says on this uh, topic, and I think it's worth declaring here, and then we're going to continue on in our text. The only reason why anyone believes in election is because he finds it clearly taught in God's word. No man or number of men ever originated this doctrine. Like the teaching of eternal punishment, it conflicts with the, uh, with the dictates of the carnal mind and is repugnant to the se- uh, sentiments of the un- unregenerate hearts. And like the doctrine of the Holy Trinity and the miraculous birth of our Savior, the truth of election must be received with simple faith. We see what we see here in the text and we go, okay, God, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, you've chosen the people of Israel, other verses, and countless, when I say countless, hundreds of other Old Testament verses that make the declaration, I am the God of Israel, I've chosen Israel. Not because of what they did, but I've chosen Israel. Now in this conversation, the reason this conversation takes five weeks more five semesters upon semesters to explain is because where our minds go and where we want to begin to categorize things. And there's a lot of terms that you can look up. Uh, You can look up something called equal ultimacy. You can look up preteration, retro reprobation. Um, You can look up something called double predestination. There's a lot of terms that we, we have to help us try to understand what's going on. But there is one term because we're not going to get into those because that's not what I think the text is doing here. There is one term that I think is worth um, all of us knowing based on what the text puts in front of us here, and it's the term corporate election, okay? The, The idea of corporate election, the theology and doctrine of corporate election is the idea that God does not actually pick very specific people before the foundations of the earth to be his people, but rather he has chosen before the foundations of the earth, for example, for us, he has chosen the church. I knew I was going to have a church. I've declared that this is going to be the church. Now, he doesn't know or doesn't declare who's going to be those people inside that church. So, corporate election is making that declaration. I don't fault corporate election for what it affirms, to be clear. I fault it for what it denies. I think it's inaccurate because um, examples like this where the Bible is clearly using terms like Jacob and Esau or like Pharaoh, right? There are clear examples that Paul is very specifically talking to, to, to people, uh, churches, right? And so the idea of, of, of corporate election is that God is, is moving a people. And, and I want to um, just lend my hand real quick to the side of um, affirmation of corporate election that I do see here that is okay. To go, I see what's going on here. And that is this idea that God is using Jacob and Esau as representatives of a large people. So he's not just saying, Jacob I loved and Esau hated. That's true. That's very true as an individual. That's where I think corporate election goes astray. But it's also true that Jacob is representing Israel. Everything I've also declared, everything I've declared up to this point. But furthermore, And this is what R.C. Sproul says. If you're going to talk about Jacob, you've got to talk about Esau. And Jacob has descendants who are Israel. Well, so does Esau. Esau has descendants, just like Jacob's descendants are called Israel. Esau's descendants are called the Edomites. This is the other people that are declared here. And so I want you to to, um, look back at your text. Then God begins, again, answering this question, which we'll come back to, Answering this question, he begins to go in on these people, right? Edom, and you're like, why is God so angry at these people? What do they have to do with anything? This is what it says, the back half of three. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. And the people uh, with whom the Lord is angry forever, Your own eye shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Okay, what is happening? A few things I want you to notice in this text. First of all, notice um, verses two and three were in the past tense. And now as we go to verses four and five, the back half of three there and four and five, he now works towards the future tense, which is interesting. Another part of this text, if we could just be honest, is it seems a little weird to say, I, here's how I've loved you. Watch how much I hate them. That seems weird, if we could just be honest, right? There's, there's something that we go, oh, okay, like, yeah, you really don't like them, so you love me? And so we, we don't know what to do with the text, and this is where we need some theological education. This is where we've got to understand what's going on with the, with the text and who these people are. So the history here is important. Um, if you really want to know specifically about um, uh, Edom and who they are, Um, I'm going to explain it here in a second, but you can actually read about it in the book of Obadiah, the smallest book in the Old Testament. Very short, but it very much describes this people group, okay? And a lot of the minor prophets actually end up gelling together in this way. But here is Edom. Edom is, as I said before, Esau's descendants. Now what we have and what we understand of history, specifically Old Testament history, is as Israel, Jacob, and Esau, Edom, as they continue on with their lineage and they grow, they continue to grow further and further in conflict with one another to the point where Israel settles in Israel, Jerusalem, and Edom, they settle in the mountains just outside of Israel. And and here's what you can understand. A hundred years prior to this text, when uh, the people of God, even further before that's when they were rescued out of Babylon. But even before, when the people of God are acting a fool and God says, stop or you're going to be punished. And then he has the Babylonians come in and kidnap uh, uh, the people of Israel. Well, as Israel is being taken into exile to, to Babylon, Esau's descendants, though they're family, they're related. They never come to their defense, number one. Not only do they not come to their defense, imagine for a second uh, Russia came in and just took all of America uh, 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 captive, right? Al Macken's like, that ain't never going to happen, right? Okay, But but, but imagine for a second it happens, and we're all taken to Russia. Imagine for a second all that would be left here for Canada and Mexico to claim. Mexico, Mexico, Mexico to claim. Imagine everything that would be on the, imagine how many TVs and couches and houses would be available for the Canadians that come down and go, I live here now, right? So not only do they not defend them, but eat them. family members of Israel, they see what's going on and they plunder what's left in the city. Not only do they plunder, but there's a few stragglers, we understand from history, there's a few stragglers of Israel left over. Do they help those stragglers? No. What history tells us is they kill them. So now you have this people, Edom, who not only is not helping, but quite literally and figuratively sees themselves as above Israel as they're in the mountains looking down on Israel. They see themselves as a better people, though they're family members. And so there's this huge family feud that's going on here. And so Israel is acutely aware of how much Edom hates them and even their own hearts on their worst days, how much they hate Edom. And God makes a declaration, I've chosen you, I've seen Edom your enemy, and I'm telling you, I'm against them. The same way he is against the patriots, right? I'm against them, right? But I'm for you, apparently like he is for the titans right now. It's magical. Um, The idea of what we see going on here is is God is making a declaration and, and positioning these two people who are at odds with another, and God is saying to Israel, I have your back, I'm your God, I'm against your enemies. I'm against your enemies. I've chosen. And they can say, we'll do it. We'll rebuild. But they can't rebuild without me. You know what's really crazy about this? Um, in Hebrew, Edom or Edom um, is the, has the same exact letters and the same exact order as the Hebrew word for humanity or Adam. Um, and it's almost like there's this parallel in the book of Obadiah where God is making a declaration this is true for all of humanity. You can do nothing that I don't allow. If I am not for it, you can build, but I will tear down. And in your pride, I see it. And I'm telling you, I'm against it. This is what's going on in the context of our text here. Now, with all that being said, um, it doesn't answer, and this is where I've got to finish. Um, why is God saying it so fervently? Why is God making this declaration? And, and, and let's go back. What's the question that he's answering? What's the question here? Why should the Calvinist or someone who's reformed or someone who believes in predestination or just comes to a text like this and goes, I don't know what to tell you. Simple faith. God seems to elect this people. They're not special. I don't know. Why is God going, this is truth? The text tells us the question that God is answering in this moment is, how have you loved us? And God's declaration is election. It's, it's not, this is here, look at it, no, look, here, it's, listen, before you were born, before you decided that you were going to come to church regularly, before you decided you were going to pick up your Bible, do you remember what you were like? Yeah, before you can even remember what you were like, I said, I'm with you. I said, you're going to follow me. And so hear me, listen, this is, um, this makes you and I not special at all. Because what election does in all of its beauty and why it should be taught with fervency and go yes and amen is because it humbles mankind and it exalts God's love. God says, I'm here not on what you did. I need you to think about this for a second. Why are you a believer and your neighbors not? Why are you a believer and your classmates aren't? Your family members aren't? Are you better than them? I mean, you might not outright say, no, of course I'm not better than them. No, no, search your heart for a second. Do you really believe you're better than them? Were you smarter than them when you heard that gospel call? Were you wiser than them? Did you have stored up righteousness pent up just waiting to come out? Is that what's true about your story? Because that's not the way the Bible speaks about you and I. God chose to sit at the loser's table, y'all. We had nothing to bring. And as he came, we weren't magnificent. As a matter of fact, I would argue if you're not a believer in here, hear this really, really well. We're the Looney Tunes. We just got Jordan on our squad. That's all that happened so you're Pepper Pig thinking you're awesome. And Jordan's going, I'm, I'm beating the monsters, right? And so here's what we have, a declaration of not awesomeness, not bravado, not righteous swag that we've always talked about, but an idea that God has says, listen, I love you. I have chosen you. Let's go back to our Deuteronomy text so you can see this uh, real clearly. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look at the declaration again. We passed over it, but hear this. This is crazy. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, uh, himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. There's election. God has chosen you to be this certain people. Here it is. The Lord did not set His love, the Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you because you are more in number than any other people. For you are the least of all peoples. You ready? but he didn't do it because you were awesome, but because the Lord loves you. So, so here's your, here's, here it is. Okay, the Lord loves me. We can see it there. Look, look again at the text. You can see it there um, at the beginning of our text, middle of our text. The Lord did not set his love on you. So the Lord sets his love on you. Why did the Lord set his love on you? The Lord set his love on you because he loves you. Right, I know. But why does he love me? Because he loves you. Yeah, I get it. So he sets his love on me. That makes him love me. So why did he set his love on me so he loves you? Because he loves you. What are you supposed to do with that as a believer in the room? He just loves you. He just loves you. Do you see it there? Jacob is not awesome. He just loves him. He just loves him. When you mess up and you don't get it right. And you're like, I'm not a believer. I'm failing. I can't get it. God, you're far. He just loves you. There it is. It's just there. But what? It doesn't matter. Forget fairness for a second. Focus on election for a second. The God of the universe has chosen to love you. It just is. Why does He love you? Because He loves you. This is actually what uh, Ephesians chapter one in the J.P. Phillips translation. I like this. He says He planned in His purpose of love that He should be that we should be adopted. Uh, as his own children through Jesus Christ, that we might learn to praise that glorious generosity by which we are made welcome. The everlasting love He bears towards His Son—I love that language. His glorious generosity—I don't know what to tell you. He just chose to bestow His love on you. <laughs> There's a, a quote by J. A. Metters, who I thought he works for the Gospel Coalition. I thought this was helpful. He says, "This election means God loved you before anyone else did." Way before the Almighty God and the, first per, uh, the Almighty God is the first person to ever love you. God made plans to take care of you eternally when you didn't ask him to. God decided to give you an inheritance with the Son without getting second opinions or calling your references. Why did God show you this mercy because he wanted to be humbled by the fact that God His declaration to his people is, how do we know you loved us? Because I loved you before you knew I loved you. I I made you my people, and it wasn't because you're awesome. God's declaration of why he loves you and how he's loved us is election. And and I I, want to soften it up, and I want to have conversations. And I'm more than willing in the lobby to do that. But here it is. It just sits, and it just is there. Now, um, this is where I want to finish, because it's an interesting conversations that we can continue on with, but I want you to see just um, what, what this means for God because um, Jesus enters on the scene and he suffers a terrible death and there's something going on there that I think we miss in the mystery of election. And what I mean by this is when you choose to love someone and give yourself over to them, you open yourself up for hurts. Now, that's a weird way to think about it, but let me give you an example. On Friday, and I don't know if I only have these dreams, I got, I got to see a counselor, I have no idea, but I had a dream that Candace, the woman who was just up here, my wife who exists, um, she, she didn't want to be with me. Not her fault, it was my own dream, okay? She didn't, she didn't want to be with me. And I woke up on Saturday morning. Saturday morning's a big sleep-in day for the Myers house. I woke up, and I, I immediately went up to cuddle up next to her. And this is what I said. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just, this is what I felt based on the dream. Because in the dream, I kept wanting to be with her, kept wanting to be with her, and she just wouldn't want to be with me. She wanted to be with this nerdy guy. I was like, what's happening right now, Okay? <laughs> And so I want to be with her. And I, I cuddled up next door when I woke up. And you have, you know, when you wake up from that dream, you're still feeling the feelings that you felt. Um, and I come next door and I go, man, the Lord showed me you have power over me. It sounds crazy. And nobody would process love. I'm not saying that's the way you should think of love. You have power over someone. But I realized in that moment, me choosing to love Candace and Candace choosing to love me back, but more appropriately, me giving myself in love to Candace, Candace has a power over me that nobody else in the room has. She could absolutely hurt me um, like nobody else here combined. If all of you but Candace said, I don't want anything to do with you, you're the worst, I would be like, dang, that really is awful. But if Candace said it, it dwarfs all of you. No offense. It just is. And so it's weird, I don't think what happens is God is necessarily opening himself up for hurt, but as you read the Old Testament, him choosing to bestow his love, you see a lot of what's called anthropomorphic language, language that describes man towards God, meaning God becomes jealous. Multiple times God becomes angry. If you read the book of Hosea, God is putting himself in the position of a man that a, a wife doesn't want to be with or continues at least to cheat on. God feels this hurt. Read Ezekiel 16. And so in opening himself up to to love, what happens is he does in some ways open himself up to hurt. But this is what we see at the cross of Christ. The cost for God in this moment is his son. And that continues to affirm his love. It's good. This is good news. It's good news for us that we're not bringing anything to the table. And I'll say this. If you are coming to the table and you hear election and you hear any part of what I've just said for the last 45 minutes of rambling and you hear uh, me saying at all that that elect people is better or smarter or more holy and we think we're better because we're the chosen people, I could not tell you how far that is from the truth. It is so the opposite that if you hold to the doctrine of election, you believe God has called your name, you are crushed with humility. Humility. And you, you feel a love that you will never, ever, ever be able to understand on this side of heaven. And that's God's declaration. So I finish with my man Spurgeon as he says this. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Yes and amen. I hope the people of Israel would have heard that as God uh, declares it to Malachi, and I hope we hear it now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by the first five verses in Malachi. We're humbled by the fact that the declaration that you give in response to how you've loved us is that you loved us before we knew we were loved, before we were born, that you um, say to the people of Israel, you are my people. And they continue to bestow acts that they don't even want to be your people, and yet you say, you are my people. That's so true for us. I know it's true for me. And so... uh, just the declaration of the song that we even sang that as we continue to champion sanctification and continue to move towards holiness, it is not I, but Christ within us. It's not us doing anything or bestowing anything, but we were chosen by you and we're grateful for that. I pray God that everything that may be going on, just very specifically for all the minds in the room, the heart might sometimes, uh, receive it, but the mind pushes back. I pray whatever questions are bubbling up, um, I pray this would be the start of a conversation for everyone in the room and not uh, the end of it, that we would seek out what this really means if we disagree and find what the text tells us. Uh, Let's be good Bible students as we continue to study Malachi together. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.